Hi, and welcome to Thriving with Sarah and Jenny. Please join us as we explore how you can enjoy a happier life and a fulfilling career, things that aren't always that easy in our modern world. We'll be taking a look to how you can explore well-being both inside and outside the workplace, how to prevent burnout, how to achieve true happiness in work and life, and so much more. So stick around. And welcome back to Thriving with Sarah and Jenny. We are delighted today to be joined by Lacey Filipich. Have I got that right? Oh, yes, you have. Phew, we did not practice that one ahead of time. <laughs> <laughs> Lacey is the author of Money School and also, I believe, runs uh, courses online in person as well mm-hmm. to help people master their money. Um, so welcome, Lacey. Thank you so much for being here with us. And I know you and Jenny know each other. So I'll hand over to Jenny to to start off. Thanks, Sarah. And welcome, Lacey. It's so good to have you on our podcast today. I'm I'm so thrilled about this because I think what you have is so special and so missing for so many of us. And yet it's mm-hmm. such an important part of what enables us to fully thrive. I'd like to kick off by getting you to explain what the heck you were thinking about <laughs> a really you know worthwhile career in chemical engineering of all things to launch the mm-hmm. money school. What on earth caused you to make that decision? I imagine it wasn't something you you made lightly. So love to hear you mm, but- about what led you to make that little step. It was a big decision, definitely was a big decision, and thriving plays a big part in it. Um, And I did have a wonderful career as a chemical engineer in mining, and I love engineering, and I'd do it again in a heartbeat. I think it's a fantastic career, thoroughly enjoyed it, suits my problem-solving mentality, my favourite thing to do. But uh, what happened was I was uh, sort of six years into my career, working really hard, and I burned out. Mm. Pretty appropriate to be talking about that on this particular podcast, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I um, I basically, you know, I thought I was invincible like most people do in their 20s. And so I was working weekends and evenings and didn't take a break for about 18 months. And I wasn't looking after myself. I wasn't eating well. I was I was doing exercise, but just not enough. Uh, and just prioritizing work over pretty much everything. And then because I was so run down, I caught a virus. And the virus that might, you know, other people might have bounced back from really threw me. And I was in bed for five weeks. And I wasn't sure in week four if I was ever going to get out of bed again. Uh, It was horrible. And one of those moments where you take stock of your life and go, why am I doing this? (laughs) This is ridiculous. And, of course, I'd come out of uni convinced I was going to be a CEO of a big mining company or something like that. And that was what I was on in terms of paths. That's why I thought I had to work that hard. And it was the first time I realised I had to look after my body if I was going to have any hope of being able to do anything satisfying in my life and also going, I don't think this is for me. I don't think I want to absolutely break myself physically and work myself into an early grave. I don't think this is my style. And so that was probably the first turning point that made me think, well, maybe another arrangement, maybe not a complete change of career, but can I redesign my life? And I did take a three-month break, went travelling through South America with my then partner, now husband, 
it's my first real experience of seeing the world. I'd only ever been overseas on like short holidays before and my eyes were open to, oh, wow, there's a big wide world out here and it's not all mine. How fabulous. And uh, getting to experience other cultures. And I still came back to work because it took me a while to take the hint that the universe was sending me and two other things happened. So one was supposed to be good, <laughs> which was getting promoted. I got promoted to superintendent. I was quite young, like 26, and that's, that is young to be in charge of a team of people in a mine site particularly, um, especially when they're mostly blokes. <laughs> Some of them have been around for quite a while. I'm very surprised to have a young 26-year-old woman in charge. But that experience just showed me that I was just more meat in the sandwich where I thought I was going to get autonomy. No, it actually just gets harder. And I was listening to things that from CEOs and it turns out even when you're at the top of those companies, I mean, you're beholden to the shareholders via the board. So there is none of the, there's no magic point at which you get to make all the decisions, right? And, and nobody tells you no, uh, which I thought for some reason would be there. That turned out not to be real. So I had that first like, oh, wow, no, nah, this really isn't going to go the way I want it to go. And then uh, the second thing that happened that was very sad is my younger sister ended her life and she was 24 and she'd had um, depression and mental health problems for a number of years. And I just remember thinking, I mean, apart from it's just an obviously overwhelmingly sad experience, just going, oh, my gosh, life is short. And, like, I know she left by choice, but we don't have long. you got to make the most of it. And so that was the turning point really where I went, I can't keep doing this, and I quit my job without another job to go to and was like, I'm taking a break. And as I was taking a break, my friends were going, how come you can quit work? Like, how come you don't have to go to work, Lacey? And I was going, well, I've been buying property that's paying me rent because I've been paying down the debt. I've been buying shares that are paying me dividends. I've got a nice big savings account. Like, I don't have to work for another couple of years of it. I want to. Um, and they were all going, what? Huh? Uh, and I was asking them what they were doing. And, of course, they had been getting credit cards and car loans. They didn't have investments or buffer funds. And that was the first time that I realised that I'd just won the ovarian lottery and my mother had taught me about money and that they hadn't. And so that's when I was like, oh, wow, this is a real gap. And, like, you know, think about that experience of going through, you know, the burnout, the you know, absolute crisis of career, what am I doing? The ability to just go, oh, well, I'll just chuck in the work and give myself some space for a while. I'll just just clock out, but I know I'm going to be able to eat. My rent's covered. You know, like there's no stress there. That gave me the space to come up with money school. Imagine if I hadn't had the money to do that. Imagine if I'd had to be like, I've got to jump into another job. So that's the first time I was like, wow, becoming financially independent, which is what I became a few years after that, it's really a recipe for freeing people, being able to give them as much choice as possible. And I have a sort of belief that there's too many people stuck doing these jobs, like, you know, the brightest minds of our generation are working out how to get you to click on an ad, and they should be trying to help solve these massive problems in the world. And so I, I hope that by teaching people about money, they'll become financially independent and then they'll work on those problems instead of working for big corporations that aren't doing us any favours. So that's a very long version, but you can kind of see where that turning point came in. And I, I guess it's probably not so surprising when you hear all the steps that led up to it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And and I think the biggest insight I've just taken away from, from hearing your story, and I knew parts of it before, was was your insight about when you realised that other people hadn't done what you'd already been doing naturally over a period of years and how yeah. financially uneducated most of us are. Most of us don't know how to read a balance sheet um, or have any idea. I mean, what I, you know, one of my pet hates at the moment is when you go into the supermarket or any shop for that matter and you buy something 
and you, you pay with your credit card and they say, do you want your receipt? And expect you fully to say no. And I'm thinking, well, how, if you mm. don't take your receipt, you don't know what you've paid. I mean, yes. And how many of us do actually go home and check our bank balances on a regular basis? Um, guilty yeah, is probably not many. So <laughs> for me, that that message is all wrong. And what I love about what you've created with Money School is just reminding us of the small things that we can be doing on a regular basis to actually put ourselves in a financially secure position. And how much freedom does that give us? I think mm. what I loved particularly from your book was the acronym FISHER. Because yeah, <laughs> totally in line with being, you know, a fully thriving, holistically well person because you're fitter. So please tell us, Lace, mm. what does fitter stand for? Ah, and this is my response because there's an acronym that goes around uh, in the financial independence community, which is FIRE, Financially Independent Retiring Early, which sounds amazing, but so many people go, but I don't want to retire. I'm not interested in retiring. That's not going to be me. And the reality is most people don't retire early. They don't stop. You know, like I technically don't have to work, but I probably work more now than I did on average than beforehand. I just am much happier doing it. I take lots of longer breaks, but it's really easy to do, right? So the point is not that you're going to retire early. It's that you become time rich. So that's why it's this F-I-T-R. And it's not like a, you know, must must quit your job, must retire early. There's plenty of people who reach financial independence and keep working. And I think for those that are wondering, well, what is this financial independence? Because some, for some people, they'll be like, oh, that's when I'm not relying on mum and dad anymore. For others, it'll be like, oh, that's when I feel secure. Look, the definition I use is the assets that you own, whatever they are. So those could be property shares. It could be cash in the bank paying interest. Those assets pay you an income. And that income is enough to cover your living costs. So I'm talking about, you know, what does it cost to feed you, clothe you, house you, that kind of stuff. And if you can get that from your assets, suddenly you don't have to work if you don't want to because those are independent of your time. And I think little small steps, like you said, little tiny bite-sized pieces of work is what it takes to get there. And the sooner you start, the easier it is. But, uh, you know, for example, my mum started when she was 49 and got to financial independence when she was 63, which is still two years before the retirement age. So don't, if you're listening to this, go, oh, well, that sounds like something you had to start. Well, I was 19 when I started investing. <laughs> you don't have to, all right? It's not compulsory. But it's about doing those small, sensible things where you, and I talk about three rules, saving buying assets and avoiding bad debt. If you can do those three things, then you're on the path to financial independence. Whether you get there or not will be about how much you can save and invest in the economy. But even if you don't get to full financial independence, it's still going to help your financial situation. So that's why I encourage people to aim for financial independence, even if you're not sure if you'll get there, because who knows, you might just get lucky with the timing in the economy. You might get it get a tailwind. Um, but if you're not prepared and ready to go, you can't catch it. <laughs> so, yeah, so I like people to aim for financial independence. I think it's a tangible point that people can understand. It's not about I need $5 million in the bank. It's Everyone's number is going to be different. It's about trying to buy assets with your savings that are going to produce an income for you so that you can work less, maybe choose not to work at all if you want to. Mm, wow. That was so awesome. And I I want to pick up on something that you said about winning, you know, you won the lottery because your mom taught you about this, right? And yeah. 
there's lots of conversations around generational poverty or the lack of understanding of generational wealth. So I would love to know, you know, what are some things that people, you know, perhaps like your mom, how how did they find this out? What was the, not the simple tip, because it's obviously, you know, intentional and focused and methodical, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, there will be people and I, and I can hear, you know, myself at a younger age, having grown up definitely not in a, in a wealthy position going, I don't even understand how I could make those decisions. You know, we were talking just mm-hmm. before about if you're having to choose between paying your electricity bill and your, you know, your heating bill, you don't have the space. And I know you're going to tell us a little bit about um, why it's harder to make those decisions, but how can you start when you're in that space where it doesn't feel like there's any opportunity. Yeah, it's it's such an important point. I get very upset in financial education when they're all like, no, you should all be saving 20%. Now, all of you instantly, that takes absolutely no account of someone's personal circumstances. It's just not fair on a lot of people. And I think about my mum who for like, you know, she's a single mum um, raising us from when I was 10 to when I was 19, you know, she's on the bones of her bum and she couldn't save. She's a magician with money. Like I never really realised we were poor <laughs> because I always felt safe and loved. You know, like that's the sort of, that's all you need as a kid, right? But, you know, we were lucky if we got one week holiday, 80 kilometres down the road, staying in the caravan park. You know, it was uh, hand-me-down clothes and all that kind of stuff. But as I said, safe and loved, so I didn't notice. Whenever I've asked her that, whenever she was helping teach, she would always say, now, even if you don't start today, even if you don't start tomorrow, even if you don't start for 10 years, don't beat yourself up. Don't give yourself a hard time. Don't put unrealistic expectations on yourself because that's not fair. There are times in your life where every dollar that comes in has to go out again. So don't force yourself because someone's told you you must have 20%. Don't do that guilt trip. And I think that reason that's really important to acknowledge, as we were sort of alluding to before, and we're going to get into a bit of the depths now, when you're under financial stress, the research shows that it drops your IQ by 13 points. So your brain power is reduced. Now, that's a Princeton research from 2013. If you want to go have a look at it, it's fascinating. And when I read that research for the first time in 2017, because I'm a bit slow off the mark, it was like a aha moment, right? Like I was raised in a what we would call liberal household in Australia, which should be like relaxed and enjoyable, but it actually means conservative. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's probably more aligned with the Republicans, that kind of thing. Maybe not quite so bad. There's no guns in their policies. Um, but you know what I mean? Uh, and they would teach me, I guess, like the, the message came out very strongly to me growing up and through my, um, you know, teens and 20s that poor people make bad choices. Don't give poor people money. They'll just take it to the pub. They'll just give it to the drug dealer. And it turns out that that's absolute BS. It is not the case at all. When any of us feel financially stressed, and there's a different number for everybody there. Like I've met founders of like $100 million plus uh, businesses who had these moments, right? It, that feeling of stress, and for this particular founder, it was about um, they didn't own their home outright. And that founder referred to losing their mojo. It's like, no, no, you've had a temporary cognitive capacity reduction because you are financially stressed. The solution is to give people money. The moment you give them money, their brains come back. But the problem is when they're going through that, your capacity is reduced, so you make worse decisions. And not just with your money, with everything, with your relationships, with your career, the whole lot. But with your money, you're more likely to go for bad debt. 
you're more likely to spend money and and sometimes you're forced to, you know, it's really expensive to be poor when you can't buy in bulk, (laughs) when you can't drive yourself to the remote shop, when, you know, you have to go to the survey because it's the only place you can walk to. So um, people make these poor choices because they feel poor. And so I think it's really important that if you're in that situation that you do everything you can to give yourself space and release that pressure because the only way you get that cognitive capacity back is when you get out of that situation. So unfortunately, when you're in that situation, it's hard to to prepare. It's hard to make good choices. So to people who are in that situation, I would say just go easy on yourself. Make no major financial decisions without some input from people you trust who are not also financially stressed. Don't sign up for a payday loan if you haven't run it past your mate who you know is good with that stuff and got their second thoughts. You know, just acknowledge that by being stressed, you probably aren't going to make a good choice. And that's not a character fault. It will go away. It's a temporary thing that happens to all of us. I think the second part is if you know that there's a risk of you falling into that, if you can do some preparation. So let's say, okay, well, I'm feeling a bit tight with money, but I'm okay. What if I lose my job? What would I do? How would I manage that? How can I reduce my risk and how would I manage if it happened? And if you can just write that down like a plan, I like to say um, worry is the absence of a plan. Having the plan written down just means that if you do fall into that situation and you get super stressed, you just pull the plan out and you've got some really good things to follow. You're not trying to make that decision. It's like trying to, you know, put out the fire when you're in the house surrounded by the fire. (laughs) You know, you want to have the plan for being outside. What am I going to do? What decision would I make? How would I know what to do there? What would my options be when you've got a clearer mind? So if you're deep in that at the moment, don't beat yourself up. Get some advice. In Australia, we have financial counsellors who are free. They can't sell you anything. You find them on the National Debt Helpline and they will advocate for you, help you, coach you, and they can't sell you a product. Um, I don't know what it is it's like in the UK and elsewhere, but in Australia, that's what we've got. But if you've got that bit of space, make those plans now. Hopefully, that's not too long an explanation, but uh, I don't think that makes sense. (laughs) So good. Thank you so much. You touched on a couple of things. And I know, Jenny, you're making notes, same as I am, because that's what we do. Um, I wanted to, you talked about, you know, that feeling is different for everyone. And I love that. And I want to ask you about, so Professor Lori Santos at Yale, she has like one of the most famous kind of happiness courses that, you know, everyone did in in the pandemic. And it's, it's wonderful. But she talked about if you make a year, you think you need to make $50,000 a year to be happy and comfortable. But if you make $150,000 a year, you think you need to make $250,000 a year to be happy and comfortable. So I wanted to know, you're shaking your head yes while I say that. (laughs) Yeah. How do you, you know, once you've gotten out of that, the temporary cognitive um, area, but how do you stop yourself or are there tips or tricks you can trick yourself into because we have this belief you know like the more we have the more we need so how do you yeah. temper that perhaps or how do you get there oh such an important point because almost everything we do online particularly but even walking around the shops is designed to make you want more mm. like that's how our society is predicated right like it's this desire gap and we do get more used to instant gratification and the problem is your brain's a real pain in the butt here it (laughs) sees money and it goes I'd like a hit of dopamine please spend me (laughs) so so you literally you literally have to fight biology which is a recipe for misery isn't it 
It's yeah. the same reason why we've got problems with, you know, exercise and, and eating and all that kind of stuff and there are these big problems that take massive amounts of effort to overcome because you are fighting a system that's trying to get you to want more because, unfortunately, that's how we've interpreted capitalism. We would like you to want more because that's what keeps the wheels going, keep wanting more because then I, then you have to work and then, then you'll need that money to buy these new things and you'll eventually reach this end point. So I think there's two things to do. First of all, stop fighting your biology. Mm. The problem with like diet and exercise is that you have to do them every day, but money you can automate. Money you can set up so that you don't have to fight your brain anymore. So my solution is a savings account that is invisible. So it's not connected to your bank like card or uh, Apple Pay or any of those things. It's um, possibly with another institution altogether or if it's with the same institution you usually bank with, you've hit the hide toggle so you can't see it, out of sight, out of mind. And as soon as money comes in, you send however much you're saving off to there, right? So you don't see it. And then you live with what's left. So I call that budget by bank balance. Most people get put off personal finance because they're like, I don't want to do a budget. And guess what? Neither do I. (laughs) I don't budget. (laughs) I live with what I've got. I save aggressively. Well, I guess you could say ambitiously. Like I suggest saving ambitiously because if if you do end up eating baked beans for the last week of the pay cycle, you just go get the money out of the bank. But once it's gone, it's gone. So, So be ambitious with your savings. Send it off automatically, right? And then live with what you've got left. And if you can do that, then most of that battle's done. And you're not having to go every day, oh, well, I have to have a good habit and I'm going to walk past this thing and say no. You go, well, no, it's not in my bank balance. I can't afford it, you know. And the number of times mm-hmm. I've gone and found that hidden account, been like, oh, I forgot about that account. And, you know, oh, <laughs> look at that, you know. Look at this. I'm going to go buy some shares. I mean, that's the second part. you got to go, oh, look at that money. I'm going to go buy some shares. Not, oh, my gosh, I'm going to buy a car. Um, but that's the first thing I would like, Stop fighting your biology and just automate. Okay. The second thing I find really useful, and this is for me um, the turning point that made me go, gee, I don't really need to make two million bucks a year as a CEO or something like that. Connecting every dollar to the unit of time you spent to earn it is very useful. So, so, and that's what I mean by time rich. Okay. So the point of money is to buy back your time. That's why we earn money, right? So that we can spend it on the things we want. I mean, aside from we all need somewhere with a roof over our head, some food in our belly, and some clothes on our back, some ability for transport. That, that's a given. But we basically are usually making money so we can have holidays, so we can spend time with loved ones, so we can do good things like that, things that we enjoy, you know, like indulge hobbies or, you know, whatever it is. So connecting it to units of time and respecting your time by not wasting it, I think, is the point. So for me, if you want to spend money on expensive holidays, go for gold. If, if it's shoes that's your thing, go for it. If it's nice food and wine, if it's whatever it is, go for it. But don't go for all the things. Pick one or two that you're like, this is important to me, this gives me satisfaction, and get bang for your buck because every dollar you spent, you had to spend your time to earn. We only get a finite amount of time. It is our most precious non-renewable resource. And if you are wasteful with it, I think you're pretty crazy. That was enough for me to go, you know what? We don't need a lot. So our family lives on about sort of between sixty to $70,000 a year. It's a family of four, two uh, adults and two primary school-age kids. We're pretty happy. Most people in our neighbourhood would spend twice that because they've got more expensive cars, they like nicer clothes, all that sort of stuff, but they all have to go to work on Monday and I don't. <laughs> and that dangling carrot of being time-rich 
is enough for me to get over that comfort creep, as I like to call it. You know, this, oh, I just need a slightly higher standard. It's also completely untrue. Beyond it, I mean, there's a certain minimum amount of money you need to be safe and comfortable. So anyone less than that, yep, you absolutely need more. But over that point, there's there's just more problems. And I tell you what, I know some very wealthy people, I wouldn't trade for their problems in a heartbeat. I just, you know, the, the issues that they have are not fixed by money. We think they will be and they're not. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not what a capitalist society will tell you. They'll tell you, no, no, just buy this thing. You'll feel great. Get a watch. You'll love it. Anyway, call me cynical. <laughs> that's so so interesting to hear you say that, Lacey, and so refreshing to hear mm. that, you know, less can be so much more. And to reconnect with well, how much money do you actually need in order to be sufficient? And like you say, it's going to be different for different people. But I think Many of us will probably have gone through some times during our life when we've had to sort of tighten the, the belts a bit and cut back. And often the realisation is that it's not that hard to actually get by or, or manage well on less. And it is this mm. comfort creep, and I love that. Yeah, me too. That was I don't want just a regular item for me. <laughs> I want a super-duper toothbrush that does all my orifices, you know, simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we do think the gadget's going to fix it. We're told it's that. Okay. All the marketing messages are like that. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, you've got to be pretty strong to overcome that. You've got to have a, a higher motivation, I think. And, and that's hard. It's not how society is built, no. unfortunately. You know, we, there's lots of, you know, conspiracy theories about it, but this is just human nature. This is our um, our desires. You know, like it's not, it's not some, I don't think it's conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just this is what happens when humans go, I want more, and that belief that it is going to fix things for you when it just mostly doesn't, <laughs> sadly. It's our biology, yeah. and it's all tied into our survival as well. I mean, if you've got, you know, some small cave with a few rushes on the floor and it's nice and warm and comfortable and safe, that's great. But if you see a bigger one down the road, you think, that might be quite nice too. Yeah. And our automatic yeah. inclination yeah. is to go and check it out because it might be available and we might be able to yeah. do it. But so often, because as you say, we're, we're being programmed to want more and it's and it's a deliberate ploy by those seeking to sell all their bang gadgets and apps and everything like that because that is the basis of how our society has been created. So let's, let's acknowledge our, our human biology I think your your piece about the fact that we dumb ourselves down when we are so stressed is the vital piece because yeah. there's mm. so much of that negative messaging around, well, poor people deserve to be poor because they, they can't be trusted and, and all this other garbage that's, yeah. that's spoken around there because it, it keeps mm. people unable to, to bring about the societal changes we need. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well it's exactly it just voices the responsibility on the individual yeah yeah, yeah. They, they, it's literally the way they say oh no your fault exactly your problem <laughs> your fault fix yourself lift yourself up by your bootstraps you lazy buggers oh. that kind of thing <laughs> you know like and then yeah. i don't know if you've heard that that phrase before but to lift yourself up by your bootstraps came about because it's a literal physical impossibility it was meant to be like like stand up and try and lift yourself up by your bootstraps you cannot do it it was originally designed to be this you know, like, ha-ha, you can't do this. And now people are like, oh, no, that's like a, I'm going to bootstrap. You're like, mate, 
That was designed to to point out that it's impossible and Mm -hmm. just because a few of you conquer it, just because a few of you do claw your way through, you are, I'm sorry, anomalies, (laughs) amazing anomalies. Yeah, but it's not fair to expect that of yourself. And I, I get very upset when I see particularly. I mean, and I, I'll do a bit of the feminist thing here. It just affects women more because we have a gender pay gap, we have the gender uh, superannuation gap in Australia, you know, the retirement gap, mm-hmm. um, all those caring responsibilities. So we're more susceptible, but we also are more. I feel like we take the guilt on more. So it's like this double-edged sword. So mm-hmm. yeah, I find it very upsetting when. That expectation of just sort yourself out. It's clearly your own problem. If you just had a good mindset, it'd be fine. Um, or if you just manifest this, we'll be all good. Uh, no, no, it's just completely denying the systemic problems, like you say, Jenny. It's a it's a system society wide thing, and unfortunately, some people cop it. And I just I really dislike that foisting the responsibility back on the individual for something that's not their fault. And I think that point about when people are in in that space, they you can't think about other things, right? If you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, if you don't know if you can, if you're going to lose your your housing, you know, those safety aspects that you said, you know, you were lucky, I was lucky, grew up in, you know, quite, quite high or low poverty. I don't know how you would describe it, but I was safe and loved. Yeah. Right. And 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 again, you know, didn't know until now looking back, going, oh wow, actually. But I know that there were times when my mom couldn't make, I don't want to say good because that's like a judgment call, but she couldn't make decisions that were perhaps better for society or the environment or uh, uh, anyone else, right? Mm. Um, And so until we, I guess, as a society fix that poverty, then then it is a struggle. It's exactly. A- That's why I'm a big uh, advocate. I'd love to see, particularly Western Australia, where we are, we've got like one of the richest states, you know, $5.8 billion surplus. Let's do a universal basic income trial, you know. Oh, Let's just see. Imagine. Why don't we just give it a crack? Because my theory is the, the amount of money you would save, I mean, it's not even my theory, it's everybody else's theory. It's a, it, you, um, the amount of money you would save by not having to deal with the side effects of poverty, the health impacts, the housing impacts, would be it would pay for itself and you'd have a more thriving society all around. So I really hope, like I've I've gone from being like a strong liberal voter to being practically socialist. I know, but <laughs> I am um, I'm still a very happy capitalist. I just would like to see us uh, take capitalism to the next stage. Let's just acknowledge that we have enough for everybody, and if everybody feels safe and secure then we're all going to be better off. It's going to be cheap for us and I'm going to make more money. So why would we not do this? Um, and I don't mean just me, but you know what I mean? Like it's going to be better for everybody. The economy is going to grow. So you'd be mad not to, in my opinion. So Lacey, a lot of your work mm-hmm. Money School is helping adults to become more financially literate. Where do you see the greatest potential? Just bearing in mind, we've got to change things up radically. Where do you think, <laughs> this is a bit of a leading question, where do you think the biggest impact is going to be made in your work to bring about the necessary changes that we do move towards a more equitable place? Beyond Western Yeah. So the answer everybody usually gives is financial education. Everybody needs financial education. Uh, And then it's going to be this fantastic revolution. Well, interestingly, we've had financial education in the curriculum since 2011. That's 11 years. And we are six months dumber in our literacy. 
since we implemented that. So it's this very inconvenient truth. Yeah, that's Australia's results. Our PISA results from 2012 when we first implemented it to 2018 show a six-month lag for 15-year-olds. So we're doing it badly. Sorry. Sorry. I've said it. We're doing it badly. (laughs) But because of that, I think that the emphasis is always on literacy because that's the thing you can measure. I know what I need to do. Mm. We don't do well at measuring capability, which is applying what you know. I, I everything that I see, you know, and I obviously I teach people individually and I'm happy to do that and there's great people out there who want to learn these skills and when they get to the point when they're not stressed anymore, they do amazing things with their money. But everything I see has got to be systemically dealt with. It's it, You can't fix this, oh, we'll make everybody more literate and then we'll all be fine when there's some fundamental flaws with the system. Things like buy now, pay later, mm-hmm. things like that, like, that should have been regulated under the national debt code the moment it came out. You know, stuff like that. They're just that's a systemic decision that we took, and we put a whole heap of people in risk. And one in five buy now pay later users is now going without meals to meet their repayments. So we do this because of our commercial incentives, because we want to make a lot of money. That's that's it. So I, if I could change one thing, one thing, I would change company law. And I would change the board directors. Their current responsibility in Australia, I think it's pretty universal, but I could be wrong, is the number one obligation of the board director is the survival of the organisation. That's put above the environment, that's put above the customer, that's put above the employees. I would change that and say, no, no, you've got a net gain. Now, I've had this massive debate with this, I think he was the deputy chancellor at Curtin University last week, and he actually ran away from me because I was so angry about this. <laughs> oh, we can't do net gain. It's impossible. We can't do it. We got stuck. You know, you end up having all this intangibly. I'm like, so because you didn't find a solution, we shouldn't do it. It's the frigging answer. Change that one thing. Make boards responsible for more than just the survival organisation, and you'll change like everything downstream of that, you know? So like it's the tiniest lever. If we could just get that right. You, you, like capitalism would kind of self-correct. I think that's the one thing I would do because I feel like it's this little tiny lever that has this huge fall effect and I feel like most of the problem is board directors are personally liable for their decisions and if they don't prioritise shareholder returns, they're going to lose their houses. We've seen cases mm-hmm. that do that. So how do you put that intention with making a good decision for humans? Have you Just, read the book Grow the Pie by Alex Edmonds? If you haven't, oh no, I haven't I read feel that. like okay. you would love this. I agree wholeheartedly with everything you've just said. But he was at London Business School. I know he's just gone and got a new appointment, but that is his theory. He's an economist. Um, he did the study, oh, the lovely. kind of studies on this. I don't know why every organization hasn't just gone, oh yeah. And it's about if you grow the whole pie for everyone you talked about, mm. for society, for your employees, for your customers, for your shareholders, everyone, if you grow the pie, everyone gets a better thing. But you need to be equally responsible. And it's it's mm. a beautiful piece of work. I think you would enjoy it. Oh, I, I will thoroughly enjoy that. Thank you. That's my summer reading sort of. Oh, oh honestly. <laughs> I, have, I, have a, awesome. I have a copy of it with like a million post-it notes inside <laughs> Awesome. But yeah, I feel like it's like this one lever. And like when yeah. I was arguing with this vice chancellor, he was like, so you want the shareholder to take the risk? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. like we'd all like to live, wouldn't we? We'd all like but, to. But they you know, don't. Like, it's really interesting because yeah. at the moment, it's not the shareholder taking the risk. They don't take any responsibility. Yeah, A shareholder exactly. should be someone. It's supposed to be if the company is struggling, you're helping them. Because you you own a piece of it. If I own a piece of my house and part of it breaks, 
or floods, as like happened yesterday because it's so cold in the UK. <laughs> I can't just go, well, I don't want that part of the house anymore. Like I own the whole house. <laughs> yeah. And so shareholder has become about just taking the dividends, I believe, at the heart of ownership, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. I-, I totally agree with you. And you do make more money. Kind of like you yeah, said. Yeah, overall, exactly. If you yeah. stop <laughs> focusing on making more money, the outcome is you make more money. Yeah. I mean, exactly. is that what and you I, see? I think that's my more. experience, but is that what you see? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. As I keep saying, it's the way we've interpreted everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's people that create these laws. Sorry, lawyers and politicians and all those people that do this stuff. They have these unintended consequences. And whoever came up with that originally, like, Milton when you just Friedman, love to go back and grab them. Yeah, like business. Milton, <laughs> mate, do you have any idea the havoc you have caused with that one statement of, no, it has to be ultimate responsibility to the, to the shareholder and to the, that, so the board is personally liable. Like, that brain fart has caused the most amazing amount of damage Oh, anyway, so yes, I would. Oh, if I could wave a wand, that's the one thing I would change. And um, and yeah, I do think we'd all be better off, like financially and environmentally, all that stuff. We we would all be happier. I love that it's grow the pie. It's exactly what I would love to see happen. Brilliant. Sorry, I got so carried away there. I'm so excited, Jenny. I don't know about you, Macy. <laughs> I'd love to have you back on the show, maybe later in the year, to talk more about this because I feel like we've talked about individual money stuff, but I'd love to dig into some more organizational finances and how organizations can do a better job. Yeah, that sounds great. I'd love to. <laughs> Excellent. So I won't have to twist your arm too hard to to get you to come back. <laughs> Not at all. I've loved it. It's been a delightful conversation and it's always great to find kindred spirits, you know. So seeing two people nodding at me going, "Yeah, I agree." That is very enjoyable yeah. as well. <laughs> and and to a little confirmation by it. And to all our listeners, if you haven't bought yourself a copy, you need to get out there right now and buy yourself a copy of Lisey Philippich's best book, which is is a bestseller, isn't it, right? Uh, It's an international award winner, I say, at the moment. Excuse me, an international award winning book. Excuse me while I brag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah shameless <laughs> brag. Yeah, no, won it. Won an um, international award this year. The best book for 2022 for the Money Awareness and Inclusion Awards. Oh, so congratulations! Love it. Thank you. And people can take your courses self-paced from anywhere in the world. Is that right? It's not. Yeah, just, that's right. Yeah, in Australia, but we can all do it. I'm on the website right now. I'm like, I think I'm going to have a little browse of the money school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please do. Yeah. So there's online courses exactly self-paced. Um, it's all just financial education. There's no, I don't uh, have any vested interest in the decisions that you make. And I think if you're just generally looking at financial education and you're kind of not sure, just ask yourself, how does the person or the organisation selling this education make money out of this? I just sell courses and, and get royalties from books. Uh, if there's someone who makes money from your transactions, for example, brokerage or something like that, just, you know, a little bit of um, healthy scepticism goes a long way. Uh, but yeah, if you're into that sort of stuff, check out the courses. And then, of course, I do um, workshops on demand for anyone who's interested in those, which can be corporates or governments or local councils. As you can tell, I'm quite happy talking about this stuff. (laughs) So yeah, that's what I do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lacey. This has been such a fantastic conversation and can't wait to have you back again on our show. Might be in 2023. Um, (laughs) And I say 2022. And uh, (laughs) meanwhile, to all our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. And we look forward to having you back on another session of Thriving with Sarah and Jenny. Bye for now. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Thriving with Sarah and Jenny. We hope you've enjoyed listening to it as much as we did recording it. And you can always get involved in the well-being conversation at all of our social links in the show notes. Until next time, stay safe, stay happy, and thrive in whatever you do.